Hello and welcome to episode 72 of the Mark and Me podcast. As always, I'm your host Mark and coming up on today's episode, it's going to be music focused because I'm joined by the Alice in Chains frontman, William Duval. I'm absolutely blown away that I've got him on the show and I can't wait to share the interview with you all because it's something very, very special and we get to talk all about his brand new solo album, One Alone. But in true typical Mark and Me fashion, which you all have come to know by now, I like to touch base and talk about my previous guest. So I was joined by the podmaster himself, Scott Mosier. This interview was a long time coming. I had a strong feeling that this interview would do well because of Viewerskew and Kevin Smith and the whole Smodcast community, but I was not prepared for just how well this interview was going to take off. After 24 hours of this episode being out... It had received more downloads than any other podcast that I've put out after 72 episodes. It's topped Mads Mikkelsen, it's topped Anthony Hopkins, it's even topped Stephen Guttenberg, which was a huge, huge guest to get on the show. So I'm blown away. I've never had so many messages, emails, a lot of people as well saying, can you get some more from Scott? So... Maybe I will, maybe I won't. But yeah, the response couldn't have been better and I'm grateful for everyone taking the time to listen to that episode. If you haven't and this is the first time you've tuned into Mark and Me, go back because there's another 71 episodes out there with a huge range of different guests within pop culture. But let's get back into today's episode. So as I said at the start, the Alice in Chains frontman William Duval is here. I can't wait for this interview to be shared with you. I've shown two of my friends this interview so far and they think it's some of the best work I've done. And William is such a great guest. So enough teasing, let's get straight to it. Here is me and William Duval talking all things music. So thank you for joining me today on the Mark and Me podcast. Thank you for having me. What I want to do, William, is take it right back to the start. So when you were growing up, did you want to be a musician at a very young age or did it come a bit later in life? Wanting to be a musician uh, came fairly early in life. Um, that started at eight years old. Um, it seems like um, there was very little time in my life where I wanted to be anything else. Yeah, for about as long as I can remember. This was this was it. <laughs> were you in a band, or were you? Did you have a guitar at a very young age? Did your parents, you know, buy you something to make you know at eight that you wanted to be a musician? I uh, I found a um, really beat up nylon string guitar in my grandmother's basement, and um, and I just started sort of plucking around on that, as fate would have it, right around that time. Um, I had an older cousin that moved in with my mother and me. So I was eight and he was 18. So 10 years difference. He was sort of in need of a place to stay. He sort of had a difficult home life with his folks. And um, this is in Washington, D.C. So my mother had been a school teacher there and she was you know she was sort of in the dc public school system and um so she was always trying to help kids you know yeah and and uh my cousin donald obviously was family so it was absolutely a no-brainer for us to take him in and um so it was just the three of us in this little apartment <laughs> in uh in southwest dc 
uh, and, and Donald brought his record collection with him, which was just a small box of records, vinyl LPs. Though the collection was small, it was actually pretty great. Um, we had all kinds of things in there from, you know, Santana to Roy Ayers, um, Weather Report, um, and then the one that really caught me was the Hendrix Band of Gypsies album. Wow. And so I remember one day he put that on and really almost immediately it just sort of captured my attention. I started asking him all these questions, you know, because I'm hearing all these wild sounds come out of the, <laughs> out of my little show and tell record player. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and, um, Interestingly, the 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 album, a lot of Donald's record albums had no covers. They were missing the covers. You know, they'd been sort of strewn about, I guess, in his yeah. previous home. So he had taken the white paper sleeves, and he often would just sort of draw his own imaginative visuals onto the white paper sleeves. But I say that to say that I was listening to this amazing music, but I had no idea what Hendrix looked like. Right, and so for you know a week or so, we just listened to this record every day, all day, for the most part, and I was just so fascinated with it, and 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 bombarding Donald with all these questions about like what, how is he doing that with all of that with a guitar? Like I just can't believe it, you know, and yeah, you know, his machine gun, you know, I've got you know bombs going off and you know rice patties being strafed and and, and <laughs> villagers being napalmed and all you know just everything coming from a guitar i just couldn't believe it and he was trying to explain uh you know everything that about stratocasters and marshall stacks and feedback and all of that but anyway at some point donald went to the library because this was 1976, we didn't have any internet, obviously. It was just dial it up instantly. And so he, he went to the library and he photocopied old issues of Rolling Stone with photographs of Hendrix in it and brought them back to the apartment. And and uh, <laughs> so I saw these photographs and I just was even more blown away. He's like, oh my God, he looks just like us. Like, this is so, you know, so... That was pretty much it for me. I I, I knew uh, right right at that point. It was like oh, this is this is something that uh, this is something I need to <laughs> look into doing. I mean, oh, I just want to once again, fate intervened, and uh, we saw in the television listings that week that uh, Monterey Pop was coming on the the film of Monterey Pop. Yeah, D. A. Pennybaker's great film document of that festival and so donald had made these plans with this friend of his who lived a few blocks away and to to come over to that friend's apartment and watch it and the friend you know treated this like a big deal as well he actually even rented a television set for the occasion you know it was one of these huge 70s floor model televisions that was you know the size of a you know bureau or a desk of drawers or something you know it was just a huge thing and uh we all went over to that to that guy's apartment and and you know of course the older guys they all lit up 
they're all up there smoking whatever they want to smoke, and 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 I'm just this little kid, you know, <laughs> just with these these older dudes. Just, but you know, I was pretty hip, you know. And we we just watched this movie, and we waited and waited, and finally Hendrix came on, and oh my god, if I was captured before once i saw that once i saw wild thing with the whole sacrifice and the lighter fluid on the guitar and setting it on on fire and smashing it and everything i just was like oh yeah this is there's no doubt in my mind (laughs) at that point it was like what else would you do with your life i mean this is it this is what you do you know this is it so yeah that was that was it for me that was the beginning and you're only eight at this point. I mean, it's you know what a what a start. Most kids at eight don't even know what they're doing. They're playing in the streets. They're just pissing around. And you're there listening and watching Jimi Hendrix. I mean, that's the best foundations you can ask for. I agree completely. I, I was incredibly lucky. Incredibly lucky. It was life changing, and it, it was perfect timing. And yeah. It, yeah. So when I was doing some research on your music and finding out about your first gig, I can't believe you were lucky enough to see the Weather Report as your first ever live music experience. So tell me about this gig. Um, on the, they were touring uh, the Heavy Weather album, which was sort of their commercial breakthrough album, I guess. You know, they had been a band for some time. They put out several records, all of which were great, and they'd had several lineup changes. Um, but by the time they got to heavy weather in 77, that was the, the album that, that, uh, sort of broke them through to another level, um, critically and commercially. And that was the lineup that had, um, obviously Joe Zawinul and Wayne Shorter, the founders of the band, but it had Jaco Pastorius on bass at his absolute prime, um, and so, you know, I got, I obviously, I got turned on to Jimi Hendrix, the, the, the great genius of the guitar, the electric guitar. And then almost simultaneously, I got turned on to the greatest genius of the electric bass, you know, the Hendrix of the electric bass, Jaco Pistorius. And unlike Hendrix, who had already departed this earth, you know, several years before, Jocko was still very much alive and well, young man, like I said, in his absolute prime. And um, I got to see him in concert um, with all the other, <clears throat> uh, you know, amazing members of Weather Report. I think that was the band that had uh, Alex Acuna on drums and it had Manolo Badrina playing percussion and just so it was, and of course Zal and Ola Wayne Shorter are geniuses in their own right and so it was just that show was it, it blew my mind completely and um, you know and it was it was a combination of watching the band and and of course Jocko but it was also being surrounded by the reaction of the audience too. And just all these people really turned on and tuned in to the music coming from the stage. And once again, people were lighting up in the crowd. They weren't, you know, <laughs> they weren't shy, yeah. <laughs> you know, smoking their, their, their joint and everything and, and, and trying to enhance the, their experience. So I'm getting this, these, you know, this, this contact 
high from marijuana smoke. I'm, I'm watching Jocko up there, and his fingers just look like spiders going across the base. And and Zalinol would get so worked up, he would just you know he would uh, jump up off the off the piano stool, and the stool would go flying across the stage. And uh, it, was just, it was just unbelievable, man. The whole thing was unbelievable. So yeah, I mean concerts and record collecting um, and really intense listening to records all became a part of my life at the same time all through all through Donald yeah so then in the early 80s you were more of a kind of in the hardcore punk scene so you were playing in bands like Awareness Void of Chaos a bit later on you were in Neon Cry so why was that change in shift was it the fact that even though you loved that music you wanted to create something different yeah, it was, um, it was, I think, I think what, what the introduction of, of, uh, the hardcore music in the early eighties did was similar to what the previous generation of seventies punk rock did for people a bit older than I was. It let you actually it let you see that being in a band and writing your own songs was not something that you had to, uh, you know, wait to get some sort of <laughs> certification or or some sort of anointing <laughs> to do. It was, yeah, it was, it was something you could do right now, and 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 with hardcore especially. You know, it was just this idea that, like, very, very young people could do it. So even though I was about 14 years old, I was like, I saw Black Flag um, in in the decline of Western civilization, the, the film. Um, you know, and I saw some of the other bands in that movie. And it was just like, oh, well, you know, I don't know. I just, like, I don't want to wait anymore. I want to do this right now. Yeah, you know, I can... The energy of that music, the sense of danger, the you know, the sense of like, oh my god, the gigs are just insane in, in LA. I mean, you can, you know, people just are going off so hard. Like, man, you could, you could go to a gig and it's just the violence just breaks out immediately. And then the fact that that it upset the authority figures so much, you know, that parents and police and just every yeah, city governments, like everyone, everyone in that position of of power hated that music so much. Yeah. So all of those things were sort of galvanizing to me, very very inspiring. And Greg Ginn from Black Flag specifically, he was he was just so advanced. His guitar playing was so innovative, and it actually had a lot in common to me with some of the free jazz that I was listening to by that point. Because by about 11, 12 years old, I'd started getting into people like Ornette Coleman and James Blood Ulmer, and and, and also, on the other side, in the rock equation, I'd sort of started getting into the Stooges and and, uh, the MC5 and... You know, of course, the MC5 and the Stooges both had their own ties to free jazz music. You know, the Five had had a great relationship with Sun Ra and 
and Stooges were hugely inspired by, you know, people like Coltrane and, and a lot of the more out stuff that he did and Albert Eiler too. And, um, I just started connecting all these dots and, and it was just such a wonderful time of, of, um, discovery and exploration. And again, it just made me feel like, you know, wow, I don't, I don't have to wait to get into this. I can dive into this right now, even as a really young person. Like, it was sort of a clarion call. Yeah. Uh, you know? So then, fast forward a few years, and what I wanted to know is, I think it was, correct me if I'm wrong, but in the year 2000, you first met Jerry Contrell, is that right? Yeah. Cool. Now, yeah, that's right. Were you actually a fan of Alice in Chains, or was this a new, you know, when you met him, were you like, wow, that's Jerry, or were you just not really a big fan of that sort of band at the time, or? No, no, I liked Alice in Chains, I liked, I liked all the Seattle, well, like, you know, you know, the music that was uh, coming out of Seattle, I guess the, you know, sort of... Soundgarden, Pearl Jam, yeah, Nirvana. I guess they call the, the, the metal, yeah. uh, Metallica and... and, and Megadeth on the big four, but whatever, you know, they, but yeah, I had, I had, uh, I, I had, uh, become familiar with Nirvana and, and, and Pearl Jam and Alice and of course Soundgarden, who I thought were, were, were great. And I liked all that music. Yeah. I dug it. I dug it all. So uh, I had, uh, I had the records and, you know, of course I had, I had, um, been a part of the underground culture that had, sort of paved the way for all of that Seattle, you know, the music that exploded out of Seattle to even be possible, right? I mean, and to have that much commercial success, you know, I'd been a part of the the, the seeding of the of the soil. Yeah. You know, yeah. So sort of prepare the country for, you know, for... A, 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 a more a, a more raw energetic music and and of course you know stage diving and moshing and all that stuff you know but yeah I, I liked what those guys were doing with it I liked what Cobain had done with some of the punk and, and pop influences and I liked what Alice and Soundgarden were doing with you know with more metal influences and and um yeah so I, I dug all that stuff i dug it all and 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 when when comes with the fall move to la from atlanta in, in february 2000 cantrell was one of the first people that that uh that we met and uh yeah it was a great 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 time great time so how did it become that you got this chance to kind of audition i know that you stood in and did the uh, I think it was the VH was it the video hits one wasn't it the decades rock I remember that the performance it must have been like did you have to kind of sit there and dwell on shall I do this because you've got such big kind of shoes to fill or were you just like fucking give me this opportunity I want to do it now well prior to to the decades rock live special TV special uh, my band comes with the fall had 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 actually toured with Cantrell for like for a couple years on yeah. the road you know, so. Um, so when we, when, when Cantrell and I met in 2000, he started hanging out with, with us immediately. Yeah. We all sort of, the four members of Comes of the Fall lived in this, this two bedroom apartment in West Hollywood. And, um, and he was over at our place all the time. And 
um, you know, he even learned uh, learned several of our songs, and he would jump on stage and play guitar with us on those songs. You know, so I would teach him these tunes in the kitchen off of our first album, and he would play them with us. And he, I mean, everywhere we were in in Hollywood, everywhere we were taking every gig we could get, and he would always be there. People thought he was joining our band, you know. He even stood in on bass yeah. with us. He played bass with us one time because our, our bass player got locked up in Atlanta and we had a gig at the Cat Club on Sunset in Hollywood and Cantrell was like, I'll play bass. You know? and that's, <laughs> that was, it was a really close thing that we had at that point. And he was also finishing his Degradation Trip album at the time. Again, this is 2000. And so... Uh, he wanted to he wanted to play some shows, and I think he saw in Comes of the Fall not only were we the most vicious band playing around town at that time, and we had a, we had such an attitude. We you know we come from Atlanta, we had been through so much in in Atlanta, and when we when we, once we got to LA, we were sort of on fire to just lay waste to that place. And to all of the kind of the attitude that most bands in LA at that time had, you know, which was, you know, we're here to be signed, we're here to be discovered, we're here to showcase, you know. Yeah. Comes the fall didn't have anything to do with that. We, we, you know, most bands were projects and they played showcases. We were a band and we played gigs and we put out records. We weren't waiting for anybody to come and discover us or do anything for us. In fact, every meeting that we took with major labels, to me, was a joke because I just knew I was just going to end up arguing and debating with these people all the time about what my band sounded like and what we were supposed to be doing and how we were supposed to be doing it. And I wasn't prepared to debate anybody about any of those things. So I think Cantrell saw that attitude and he saw the all-for-one, one-for-all thing that we had, the living hand-to-mouth and living sort of all together like that. And he, you know, he missed that kind of thing. <laughs> Probably brought him back to the beginnings of Alice. And, you know, and, and so that plus the fact that, like I said, we were destroying every place we played. He was like, well, you know, I, want, I, I I gotta play some shows. You know, would you guys want to go on the road with me? And I was like, well, yeah, we'll do it if we can also open the gigs and sell all our stuff. And then, you know, so we did double duty for like two years. We we would come out and play our set as comes to the fall. Then we'd run backstage and and uh, you know cool off for a second. Then we'd come right back out and and play his set with him. We did it, like I said, 2001, 2002, all of 2001 and 2002 throughout the U.S. And we came over to the U.K. as well, played, you know, freaking Bradford and Wolverhampton. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You know, I mean, we did, you know, we did a a proper U.K. tour, man. We went into the hinterlands and everything. And, uh, yeah, it was cool. It was really cool. So there was a lot going on prior to the Decades Rock thing. That's you know? cool, yeah. Um, by the time we get to that, it was like, you know, I had I had uh, 
put in a lot of miles with uh, with dude there. You know, we were, we were pretty we were pretty together. <clears throat> it makes sense now why he kind of. I think he's gone on record and said that it only took one audition for you to get the gig because you've obviously become sort of brothers on the road. You must have had a tight unit, shared some amazing experiences, and just have so much love and respect for each other. It was just natural for you to just step in. Yeah, 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 exactly. So what was it like then when you went on stage and you had all those people and you sang that that, that opening line to Rooster? You must have been like, it made the hair stick up on my... I was dubious, I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to sit here and be fake and be like, oh, I couldn't wait. I was like, how is this going to work? What's it going to be like? <laughs> you know, there's honesty for you. I was like, is this going to... This is big shoes to fill. Lane has one of the best vocals out there. And I saw you at Download. I'm thinking it's like 12 years ago or something now. Donington. And the moment you came on stage and that first note you sang, I was sold. I was like, fucking hell, take all my money. Here you go. This is, this is it. You know? Yeah, right on. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, well, the, the Decades Rock thing in New Jersey was a trip. Yeah. Because it was, yeah, it was, it, well, because it was the first thing, you know, it was yeah. the first thing we did. <clears throat> and, uh, and it's in an arena, first of all. And, uh, an arena in New Jersey and and it's on television so no pressure <laughs> yeah yeah exactly yeah it was, it was sort of like wow okay we're really jumping right in aren't we and um and it was this kind of all-star thing because for it, the, the the special was actually Hart's gig the Wilson sisters it was they, they were being honored yeah by VH1 and they invited Alice to be a part of it, um, but even the Alice and Chains section of the program was, a, you know, was supposed to be sort of an all-star gathering in and of itself. So it was the Wilson sisters with their own all-star gathering being honored, and then the Alice portion had its own sort of all-star component, uh, and Phil and Selma come down to come over to sing um, sing a song and we had uh, and then Ann Wilson herself was actually supposed to sing Rooster that night and um, <clears throat> earlier in the day they were doing the <clears throat> the camera rehearsal and uh, Ann had not made it downstairs yet and so they were like well we got to get this camera blocking done you know and and so they just asked me, well, can you, can you sing it? So we started in, and in the middle of the song, Ann and Nancy came down, and I saw them in the wings, you know, the stage, while we were doing it. And afterward, Ann was like, oh, you got to sing that. you got to sing that song, you know, um, which was very kind of her, because that was supposed to be her big moment on her show you know with uh you know with 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 their own with the wilson sisters sort of brother fellow seattleite band alice in chains um and she gave it over to me it was it was really great it was really great and it, and it ensured me a spot in the television show which was ended up being our our introduction you know our, our coming out party um, for what we were going to do um, for the next, well, now it's been 
13 years, um, going on 14 years. So, so obviously, since that time, you've had some more studio albums. You've been writing. You're 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 part of the band. You know, you're the family now. It, it couldn't have gone better. I think Rainier Fog was easily one of my favourite albums last year. It was great to hear what you were doing. But the times come now where you felt that you wanted to bring out your first solo debut album. Now, what was it that made you at this point now, thirteen years later into Alice, to go? I want to bring out my own stuff. Um. Well, just just the, it was just time, um, as you say. So so much work has been done um, with Alice, and and um, and obviously prior to that, I put out a bunch of albums with Comes with the Fall. Yeah, and uh, and then in 2016, I did the Giraffe Tongue Orchestra record with um, Ben Wyman from Dillinger Escape Plan and Brent Hines from Mastodon. Um, so there's just there there've been quite a, a a catalog of of work that I was extremely proud of, both with Alice in Chains and also outside of Alice in Chains, and and um, but it was all sort of these really it was all these band oriented sort of aggressive high energy electric rock records and when you look at my entire history as you say we're we've we've gone back to the beginning just in this discussion we're talking about 35 years or so of very aggressive band oriented rock music you know and and there were even a lot of things like in the late 80s and early 90s sort of post hardcore but pre comes fall that we didn't even touch on that also play a really important role in my development. But all of it, again, band, electric, maybe acoustic guitar plays a role in in the music, but it's more of like a color. Uh, um, it's more of a it's more of a seasoning. <laughs> you know, it's not it's not the main the main focus and. So I thought, well, after all these years of doing that kind of thing, you know, dynamic electric rock and roll, um, let's break it all the way down to the, the barest essentials. One guitar and one voice all the way through for an entire album. And let's see what happens. Um, and that's the One Alone album. And, uh, and I thought... And let's put it out under my own name, because it just seemed, I don't know, it just didn't seem right for me to try to come up with some pseudonym or something. Um, you know, I, I've I've never put out an album under my own name. I never particularly envisioned doing it. Uh, I was, I've always been a band guy um, for my whole life, but... Um, just the nature of this particular album, One Alone, it just felt like the most honest thing to do was just to uh, surrender to the to the idea of like, well, look, you know, I am who I am. I've I've um, you know I've gone out here for a lot of years now, and uh, <laughs> you know, it, it it put in a lot of road miles and hit hit a lot of stages you know um stomped a lot of boards 
and as as this this thing <laughs> this person you know William Duvall might as well just own that whole thing so so here we are and and it, it was it, it was a strange thing at first but I've actually warmed to it quite a bit and and feel really good about it now um, so uh, I mean I always felt good about the album but I just mean the idea of putting out a record under my own name and just all of that stuff everything that goes with with that you know I, I don't know I was always so used to promoting bands that at first it, I, there was a lot of trepidation about just promoting myself as this solo artist but again the One Alone album speaks for itself I just couldn't see my way clear to do it any other way and so now the I feel good about all of it, you know, not just the music, but just the idea of of uh, doing records under my own name. What I love most about it is the contrast. So you've done all these bands, you know, you think of all the bands like Madfly and all these big heavy sets, and now you've stripped it down. And I think you just said only a moment ago, it's one voice, one guitar. And for me, it's got that feel of, the way that someone like Bob Dylan used to do it, it would just be yeah. alone doing it and it sounds perfect and it works. And I think it will surprise quite a few people because it's so minimal, but how rare is that nowadays just to have that raw element of just the power of one acoustic guitar and one fucking awesome voice. And it just, that's all it needs. I think less is more. Right on. Well, thank you for saying that. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean that, that's, that's it. I mean, that, that's it. it the, 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 I, the question for me was, can this work? Can these songs stand up to that presentation? And, and can, um, can that particular presentation hold up for, for an entire album? And, and, um, again, I, I think the, the audience is always the final judge of all of that, but from from where I was standing, um, it held up well enough for me to say, "Yeah, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna put this out. This is this is what makes sense for me to do right now, and I'm gonna I'm gonna go ahead with it and and uh, and put it out and 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 let the audience be be the the, the judge of it and. Um, it, 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 it holds up as a listening experience. I felt like perhaps this is the kind of album that one could listen to um, in their most quiet, introspective moments. Yeah. Right. You know, and, and I thought, well, you know, best case scenario, maybe this album could become a friend to somebody. You know, just like so many albums by people I love, artists I love, have become a friend to me, you know? I think it can become such a big part for someone. I, I already kind of picture when the vinyl arrives, me coming in, having a shit day at work, but I put the vinyl on, I sit down, and it's just me and you, and you're singing to me, and there's the guitar, and it's like you're playing in the room. That's the kind of feel I get, because there's none of this overproduced stuff, there's none of these big harmonies and choir and bloody string sections it's literally 
just you and the guitar and I'm sure when it came to the production you wanted to keep it as if it's that live performance feel I'm sure you didn't sit there and do overdub and overtake and all this it's, it's so well done I'm sure did it take not that long to record I can imagine it being quite a quick production for you yeah 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 um the genesis of the album was eight songs recorded in one day one day yeah fuck man so i had i i went in initially to do what i thought was going to be just a a demo for the song till the light guides me home which is the, the first single ended up being the first single of this album um and i just that went down so quickly that I thought, well, I'm here, I'm in the studio, why don't I just lay down a few more? And, um, and, uh, so yeah, I did seven more. (laughs) Walked out that evening with eight songs and, and felt pretty good about it. Um, and was, you know, kind of listening to those off and on, um, driving around or whatever. And uh, thought, yeah, this sort of sits together pretty nicely. All these these tunes, like this, this is this is pretty cool. And so I went back in sometime later uh, and just did several more in an evening. And so that's the one alone album. That's that's it. Two sessions. <laughs> that's what you must be every uh, sound engineer's dream. <laughs> <laughs> I'm thinking now. What what's next? Are you are you planning to tour it and get across the world and just be you and a guitar and you know play these songs in nice intimate venues? That's it exactly. Yeah, yeah. So got um got some got a got a bunch of U.S. dates booked for this fall, 2019, and then early 2020, and then um right now I'm looking at getting over to the U.K. and Europe. Uh, also in early part of 2020 still have to kind of finalize a lot of the, a lot of those dates but but that's kind of the the aim right now is to do exactly what you said just get around the world very intimate venues uh, myself and a guitar that's it um, and just see <laughs> just see what we can do with that you know <laughs> kind of bring the one alone experience to everyone live. <laughs> How does it feel? Does it feel quite intimidating because it's just you and you don't have that band, you know, that backing band with you and the friends that have been on the road? Or is it quite an exciting feeling to know that it's it's literally a one man show? <laughs> it's both. It's 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 nerve wracking and it's exciting. Um, and uh, I'm hoping that the nerve wracking part will dissipate <laughs> over time <laughs> and it'll just be sort of. Like, oh, no, this is great. No, this isn't so bad at all. And I, I'm hoping it'll be a little bit like getting over that trepidation of putting out a record under my own name. Uh, it, it, it'll just sort of, the show will just be yet another thing that that I can do and feel, feel pretty good about. Um, so, yeah. But yeah, right now it's still so like, what? <laughs> It's like wow, yeah, this is real. Like I got dates booked. Like the the U.S. shows for the fall um, went on sale over this past week or so, and it's like yeah, it's real now. We're selling tickets. You can't back out now, <laughs> oh, man. My goodness, yeah. 
I really, really can't wait for you and uh, the you know to get over here. And I, I really hope there's some UK dates in the the early of next year. And you know, I'll be the first one there. And I hope I get to share a beer with you and see this show because I, if I can hear these songs live, I think it'll be fucking awesome. And I, I really do wish you the best with this release. Thank you so very much. That means a lot, really. Thank you. The one thing I always do for this podcast is ask the guests to pick the outro music. You can have any song in the whole world to be played. How's that to put you on the spot? But um, is there a song that you'd like to end this episode with? Wow. Oh, wow. Of just anybody. My Whatever goodness. comes to your um, heart where you think, fuck yeah, that's my song. Well, I mean, this, yeah, obviously there's so, so, so <laughs> many records and so many songs that I love so much. But, um, well, for just just for this particular discussion and, and, and having left off with discussing the One Alone record, why don't we end with um, something from from Buckley? Yeah, that that'd be cool. You know what, Jeff Buckley? This is fucking spooky. So I spoke and interviewed his manager Dave Laurie a couple of weeks ago. Um, yeah, and I put, that I, book. I put out yeah. a special about his book, which is fucking brilliant. And uh, last week, obviously, the estate started releasing all these rare recordings and live performances that we've never got before. But I've actually mm-hmm. interviewing tomorrow night his official photographer Mary. Um, and we're sitting down and we're going to have a massive talk about what it was like with Jeff. And he's literally my most favorite artist. And Grace is my favorite album of all time. Oh, wow. Well, that's so fantastic. You know, I I actually read Dave Laurie's book and it brought back a lot of memories. I, I saw, you know, Buckley and I had, had some mutual friends in New York. And when No Walls, my band from about 88 to 92... We went to New York in 1990 because, well, Vernon Reed from Living Color brought brought No Walls to New York because um, he was trying to get us signed. <laughs> he was, you know, Living Color was a very hot band at that time, and, and so Vernon was trying to use whatever clout he had to bring the industry to to us. And um, so we played all these gigs around New York and everything, and, and I actually... Um, for, for whatever reason, I, I, well, Buckley hadn't hadn't quite moved to New York by 1990. He hadn't gotten there yet, but um, but yeah, I ended up meeting a lot of people that that would end up playing with him and and so on. Um, and then right when No Walls broke up, I started hearing about this guy Jeff Buckley, who was Tim Buckley's son. And No Walls used to get compared to Tim Buckley by you know, real sort of muso types yeah. quite often. And so I was like, oh, who's this guy, you know? And when he first started touring around with Dave, just driving him, the two of them alone, um, I went and saw him at a place called Eddie's Attic, and it's just outside Atlanta, and uh, about five people in the audience, and I was one of them, and I brought... A friend of mine, the old drummer of Neon Christ, came with me, Jimmy Deemer, and we watched Buckley. Um, he was sort of sitting around at the bar, and then he just sort of walked over, and he had this little tiny Fender amp and a Telecaster, and he just had a bottle of Guinness, and he took a swig off it, set it down on the on the ground, and stood there and just <laughs> just killed it like it was so. <laughs> it was just such a strange and funny thing to watch this guy uh who was doing this really really intense kind of 
jazz, rock, and folk, and world music thing all combined. But it was just him and a guitar, and there was nobody in the room. And he's just really going off on his own trip. I mean, he was trying to get into, you know, kind of almost like an ecstatic state. He sort of, again, he had, we had a lot of the, we had a lot of common influences because he had the news rock Bate Ali Khan thing. He had yeah. The, you know, he had all this stuff going on. He was, he was trying to get into where it was about getting to a higher spiritual place. And, and, um, I just remember thinking like, wow, like, yeah, this is, this, this cat is something. And I went and saw him the next night. He played downtown Atlanta in a place on Trinity, Trinity Avenue. And I went down there and, and, and met him and stuff. And, um, you know, and it was a trip too, because the, singer from the cocktail twins was there as well she was watching the gig too and i don't know if they were playing in town or whatever but but i know she, she and buckley kind of became pretty close and i saw them together at that thing i don't know if they were meeting for the first time or if they'd already known each other or what but i remember seeing that too and um yeah so so anyway dave lord's book brought back a lot of memories and and yeah He's the um, one. I'm but yeah, I suppose we could. We could any. If you have the, ex, do you have the expanded live at Chennai? I've got <clears> everything <throat> he's ever released. I've, I'm a nerd. I've I've got signed CDs. I've got his final tour pass that Dave gave me for doing the interview. Okay, well, if okay, if you have, if you really have everything, there is. Then you you might know that you have the the. There's a B side, and it's "Lover, You Should Have Come Over," recorded acoustic live in Japan. Yeah, that's fucking my one of my favorite versions. That's my outro music. No, <laughs> that's the one. The version of "Love You Should Have Come Over," where they're 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 playing acoustic live in Japan. Him and the band playing acoustic live in Japan. That it's was my outro. Flawless. Yeah, man, I've really enjoyed talking to you. It's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, I know your time is sacred, and you've got a lot on today. But I just want you to know how much I appreciate you coming on. Oh, thank you so much. And man. when when I hear you announce some UK dates, and I want to come and meet you, and we're gonna have a beer. Wonderful. Looking forward to it. <laughs> awesome. But thanks again for coming on, and uh, good luck with the album. And hopefully, I'll stay in touch. Right on, man. Absolutely, we will. Thank you. Nice one, dude. Take care, buddy. So there it is. There's my interview with me and the Alice in Chains frontman, William Duval. And as you heard, we discussed in great detail his brand new solo album, One Alone. I'm not just saying this because he's been on the show. I've been lucky enough to listen to this album and it's fucking phenomenal. At this moment in time, it's my album of the year. It's that good. It's out this Friday, but if you're listening to this after the release, go back and get it, because it's on Spotify, you can be old school and go and buy a vinyl or a CD or listen on Apple Music, whatever way you listen to music, go and check out One Alone. And a big thank you to William for coming on the show, he's very busy, he's touring with Alice in Chains, he's such a busy man, but he took the time out to talk to me, and for someone like me who's such a big fan, it's an honour for him to come on the show, so a huge thank you. Also, you know the score by now, you can go on markandme.com. On there, there's my Facebook page, my Twitter, my Instagram, and also my email. Also on there, you can go on and see my Patreon page. Now, this is something that gets a lot of support. I give away a lot of prizes to say thank you for all the support this podcast gets. But I can't do this podcast without your support. I don't make any money from doing Mark and Me, and all of the donations that I get on there through Patreon helps go into me travelling to get more and more guests, which means more and more interviews for you. You can go on there and actually subscribe as something as little as like a dollar a month, which is nothing, and at the moment you're getting four episodes, which is about 25p. 
and that is pretty cheap. Do you know what? I was in um, Greg's the other day, and I went to order some food, and they wanted another thirty p to eat the food in Greg's. That's not including the food. That's just to sit there and eat the food that you bought. And I thought to myself, fuck man, my podcast is cheaper than just having the right to sit in a Greg's. So if that's not a reason to subscribe, I don't know what is. And you might be thinking I'm going off topic. It's true. But do you know what? Out of spite, I went and sat in Starbucks and ate my Greg's in there for free, which is pretty good. There's a little tip for you. You can have that one. As always, guys, I'll be back in a week's time with a brand new episode. And I just want to say at the end of this episode today, you've had a secret. You've found out that the outro music on all Mark and Me's are actually picked by the guests themselves. That's something I haven't ever revealed in 72 episodes, but I love the talk that me and Will had all about Jeff Buckley. So I felt it was needed in this episode and I hope you all appreciate it. And now you know why in just a few moments you're going to hear Jeff Buckley because it's William's choice. I have two very good friends that have listened to this episode before it went out there. They're someone that I was lucky enough to see Alice in Chains with. It's Scott Higgins and Darren Wolfe. If you know me personally, you'll know how much I love these guys and they're my two best friends. They really do mean the absolute world to me. And getting this guest was something I wanted as a present for those two. For all the support, all the love they give this podcast, but also as just the friendship they provide me. So this podcast, and I've never dedicated a podcast, I don't think, to anyone, is dedicated to you two. You are absolute legends and I thank you for every day making me a better person and I hope you've enjoyed this interview, boys. But also everyone else out there, I love you all too. I appreciate you listening and I'll be back in a week's time with a brand new episode. Take care, guys.
Too late.